Welcome to another Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, where we're allowed to geek out with our fellow nerds. Today, I'm proud to introduce Larry Furman, who has the rare PMP certification and has recently achieved CMMC V2L2 certification at his organization. Larry, please uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little about yourself and then talk to us about the fun of the uh, CMMC V2L2. Sure. Hi, hi, Mike and, and everyone. Um, I've always, I, I got into computers. It was, I, I majored in biology, got a bachelor's, went on to grad school. And in grad school, I had to, uh, choose between learning to read Russian, German, or French to read research papers or program computers. And growing up on science fiction with intelligent machines, you know, Asimov and and Heinlein and everybody. Programming computers seemed like a like a no brainer. Um and uh it was. I I got my first job in computers doing tech support at an insurance company. And one of the things and and my recent job at Linearizer a big part of it was running the tech support team and building a white glove support organization, as well as uh, what you mentioned, CMMC version two, level two. Yeah, that CMMC, man, I keep stumbling on that. <laughs> I was able to do it during the intro, but um, so does everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it the, stands uh, for cybersecurity maturity model certification and the department of defense requires contractors and subcontractors to be compliant with the one of the three levels contractors um need to be compliant with level three subcontractors with level two and even the plumbers and hvac contractors and electricians and the the people yeah. who mow the lawns and uh, shovel the snow in the winter need to be compliant with some with aspects of level one. And yeah. we do that. Go ahead. The DOD does that because, you know, we kind of live in a dangerous world and there are threats, um, cyber threats coming in every all day. Yeah. So, um, quick question. The uh, organization that you helped achieve this for, um, were they already of that security mindset or did this compliance driven by business, I assume, um, because they're a contractor or a subcontractor, um, was did the security come because of the business or did the security come because they wanted to make sure to protect their assets? The security came because of the business. They wanted to protect their contracts, their yeah. assets, but they were of a security mindset. Um, they understand, they understand the threat landscape. I was in, in instrumental in bringing them to this compliance, but they were, you know, ready to go. So it was like, like an, you get in an Uber. And you say, okay, take me to the airport. They know they want you, you, the passenger wants to go to the airport. The driver, it's the driver's job to get them there. 
Yeah, because it's really an organizational thing. It's not just an IT thing. Correct. It, it you know you have to have you have to log people who come into the facility. Um, we used both a paper log and an electronic cloud-based log. You, you have to print badges. You have to designate people who are U.S. persons, i.e. citizens or with a green card, and foreign nationals, whether they're from Europe or Canada, an, or an ally or a non-ally. And um, physical security is part of it. Clean desk policies are part of it, which are not IT. A clean desk is not what you'd see if you come into my house. <laughs> but it is yeah. it is what you see when you come into my office. Yeah, well, okay. and, and it doesn't necessarily, it just means none of the protected materials um, out in yeah. the correct? You know, I can yeah. still have a stack of material just as long as it's not anything that's protected or um, critical. Correct. Confidential. Confidential, yes. But, you know, there's there's so many aspects of CMMC, um, especially level two and the uh, NIST 800-171 that are um, so IT focused, you know, the MFA. Yeah. Um, encryption, the uh, encryption for pro or for communication protocols, all of that. And there's yeah, it's a lot. So typically, we as IT leaders end up being the head or the lead on those projects. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and some of this you can achieve with outsourcing or with certain cloud services. Um, we used a tool called Prevail, which is, which is built in the Amazon Web Services GovCloud for encrypted, uh, email and encrypted file sharing. The alternative to that would have been an Amazon Web Service to, to an Amazon Web Services GovCloud email address for everybody. Or a Microsoft Azure GovCloud email address for everybody in the entire organization, which would have been significantly more expensive. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you want me to uh, name companies and vendors that we used. No, that's that's fine. I just want you to be careful of anything that that would step on any toes involved in your career. Um, we're allowed to talk about any vendors that we want to and in whatever method that we want to, but I tend to try not to uh, step on people on, along the way. So let's rephrase that and say we used some tools that enabled us to have encrypted and end-to-end encrypted email and end-to-end encrypted file transfer with our our clients and our suppliers. Yeah, those are for ITAR compliance uh, purposes. ITAR is the International Traffic and Arms Regulation. Okay, but this also made it where you didn't have to pay for those types of accounts for everyone. You could do it for just specified individuals, or for yes, about thirty-five out of the uh, out of a hundred, so thirty-five percent. Okay, yeah, which sixty-five percent savings then? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
CMMC has 11 basic control families from access control, which is physical access, as well as logical access um, and, and awareness and training because the individual is, is, you know, the weakest link. So, you know what, let me, let me take a different tack on you real quick and, and yeah. talk to you about what it was like doing tech support in the eighties. Um, you know, you're talking about mm-hmm. working at an insurance company in New York city. So what I, I can't First you know, of all, I look at how tech supports changed in the 20 years that I was involved. And that was 20 years after you were doing it. Um, so what was it, it was like all on site all on it site. was often face to face or occasionally over the phone um i was helping secretaries using wordstar and accountants using lotus <laughs> one two three. Oh man <laughs> those are yeah it's been a while and since I've those names <laughs> yeah a, a, a blast from the past right right but and in that role, too, I learned that you can't really communicate effectively with an, a non-computer person using technical jargon. You you can say, like with Lotus, if you want to print something, you go to file print, I think. Right. Um, and you can explain, okay, this is what they call a range. It's a group of cells. It's either one column wide or, or, and, you know, a couple of columns deep or several columns wide or several columns deep, which is the same as in Excel. Right. And, um, and again, with, with WordStar and today with Word, a typical problem is how do you do a table of contents? If you do it the brute force method, which is, you, you know, you go to your document and you say, okay, this is page five. I'm going to start a new chapter on page five. And you open up a new page and you say, chapter two, page five. Well, what happens when you add a, a, a couple of, you know, paragraphs to chapter one? Pa- chapter two then starts on page six. And chapter three then starts on page nine. Are you going to manually edit every line? No. You're going to use um, Microsoft's built-in table of contents or LibreOffice if you're not using Microsoft. Yeah. Well, hopefully, or, you know, there's so many people who still today just brute force all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, write all the content and then then create the table of contents afterwards once, once they finalize things and hopefully they get everything right or that so, their editor catches it. <laughs> I I worked for a law firm in New York for nine years, from the 2005 to 2014, and one of the founders is a writer. He he's retired. He's 83 years old. He still writes. He's got a Mac. He and he's writing a couple of books. He does a chapter at a time. In each chapter is a different file. So he has to kind of manually, well, he doesn't generate the table of contents. He sends the entire chapter, each, the entire book as a zip file to his publisher who assembles it and, and does, does all of that for contents and yeah. stuff. It's, uh, he, it's a, it's, it's a, 
I like it's a challenge working with them. You know, it's a lot of fun actually. And we go up until COVID, when I was in this in New York, I would stop by his office, his house after work, and I'd fix his problem, whether it's a new printer or, or some funky thing going on in the in the computer, and then we would sit and talk about politics. So what you can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 always a nice way to finish an interaction is to sit back and relax and have a drink and just talk with them and, and get yeah. them on a personal level instead of just the uh well help me do this. Okay, now leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There are you know, people in every company in every nation that look at IT as, you know, a service and don't want to look at an IT person as a person. They're just a techie. But then there are people everywhere, whether it's a law firm or an engineering company um, or accountants that will look at IT people as, as people. Yeah. Well, and, and I think some of that's changed over the years. Cause I, I think, I think back to when I was a kid and, I uh, um, like the, uh, the revenge of the nerds, um, that, that movie and, and how they looked at it people within that movie and what I look at and what I see as mainstream it people today. And, and they're no longer classified into that non physical, non, um, you know, the nerds wearing the glasses with the tape in the middle of it, um, you know, with the, the pocket protector and they're no longer that Yeah, there's a lot of guys that are out that out there that are in it, that are extremely, um, health conscious and, and spending lots of time in the gym and, and doing those kinds of things. And, and it's, it's now so pervasive in everything we do technology that is, um, that almost everybody has to have some degree of understanding of technology anymore. They say, yeah, you know, my kids have no clue when it comes to networking, but they live and breathe because of that networking, you know, they're connected sure. everywhere they go and they don't even think about the complexities behind it. It's just taken. For they also may not think about the cybersecurity ramifications of the networks they're connecting to. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, or what they're doing in social media and things like that. You know, I've been yeah. watching some, some stuff about like there was a, a financial group in, I want to say it was in Germany um, that, that took a, a picture of a child, someone that was like five years old, advanced her in age, and then did an advertisement in a movie theater to her parents who were in the movie theater about the digital footprint that they were leaving of their child today and how it could affect her in 10 years. Holy cow. Yeah. I, I'll have to uh, send you the link for that after afterwards. Yeah. And, and I'll probably drop it as a comment um, on, on the podcast when we, when we go, cause it, it's a really interesting video. It's something that I got from an FBI interaction. Um, that they were talking about our digital footprints and what we're, what we're leaving behind. And uh, AI, yeah. 
Yeah, the AI stuff because they they used AI to advance her age and then um, use to change her voice. And because they had a recording of, they had this recording of like a five year old made her twenty years old and said, "Mom and Dad, look at what you're potentially doing to me." <laughs> the some of the well, a, American Express has it its fraud detection system is built on an AI model that they started working on in about 2010. It's um, very effective. It's built on it's built in part on our digital signatures or in for American Express our commercial signatures. When you buy something um, at a, a local restaurant or at a chain restaurant whether when you're whether you're shopping at Hall Foods or uh, Trader Joe's or a local regional grocery, they know. And so, if something steps out of the ordinary, they'll either reject it or they'll call you up. So, like if you get on a plane in in Newark, New Jersey, and you fly to California, and you take a, a, a you drive to the airport and you park your car or you take an Uber to the airport or another taxi to the airport, they know that transaction. You then you buy a, a, a cup of coffee or a sandwich in the airport, they know that transaction. You bought the airplane ticket, they know that transaction. Yeah. You what land about- in California, they know they're expecting you to in california and and you buy something in california and they're like okay mike's in california now but if your credit card shows up in vegas or in albuquerque or san francisco rather than los angeles they know something fishy is going on well and it it depends on the the type of product too because there's lots of times now with our purchases those purchases are being registered all over the country or the world um, yeah. and just depending on what you're purchasing, but like one of the triggers that I've heard of is purchasing gas and buying tennis shoes, um, right afterwards doing those two things are like, uh, a, a red flag to most of the credit card companies of somebody getting a hold of your credit card. Cause they go fill up their tank and then they go get those high dollar Nikes <laughs> that they uh-huh. could never afford themselves. And, uh, it, that seems that it was an anecdote that I'd heard. I can't remember exactly who it, who I heard it from, but it's something that it's almost guaranteed American express visa, MasterCard. They're all watching for, for that kind of set of transactions. Pattern. They, yeah. They've already identified the patterns of people who, when they steal the, your credit information and they start getting into it, that they, they recognize patterns of behavior, testing the card to see how much whether a transaction goes through and then making a large purchase almost immediately. Right, right, right. All the credit card companies are doing this. Yeah. And they can also, a way to detect fraud is if there's a user with no credit history, someone makes up a social security number and then goes and gets a credit card and they, they don't have a credit history. Um, yeah, their credit is pretty low, <laughs> usually. Well, you would see that, I suppose, if from 
um, an immigrant from a third world country, a very poor country. Right. No, no bank account, no credit. Yeah, somebody comes into the country and then then they um, start the, making their credit history at that point. But they're yeah. not going to give them a, a twenty or $30,000 credit limit right off. You would presume they wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I would presume. You would hope not. <laughs> yeah. Well, considering the fact that we all get to pay for it and the prices of all of our goods um, to help cover that. So I noticed in your history um, a little bit of – of chances to go into different places across the world. Um, yeah. Talk, talk to me a little about that. How did, how did it help you get to all of the different places that you've been and tell us about a little of that experience. So I, I was working in New York, um, at a financial house that was owned by a Japanese bank, a derivative shop owned by a Japanese bank. And they wanted us the, the bank back in Tokyo wanted to see what we were doing so i got to go to tokyo for two weeks set up this uh and set up a a simple five or or six or seven workstation network built on sun spark 20s or spark fives sun sun you know architecture this was back in the 90s Got to Tokyo for two weeks, took the bullet train to Ki- to Kyoto uh, over the weekend, had, <laughs> had a lot of sushi. Um, it was interesting. Hopefully then, you liked sushi at that point. <laughs> I liked sushi at that point. Okay, good. Although after the trip, I'd had a little bit more sushi in um, too short a time span. So it was a while before I had sushi again. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. yeah. The next, then a cup a year or so later, I started a job for a company that that made backup software, which is where I started getting interested in dis- in disaster recovery. And they, my role in their professional services organization was to travel across the, mostly across the United States. Um, mostly to military bases, the Navy, the Marines, primarily uh, installing their software and training the users and the administrators in it. Well, I got to go to Cherry Point, North Carolina. And I also got to go to San Diego, California. And um, I embarrassed one of my colleagues in San Diego by by asking the 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 waiter the wait staff uh, what this thing was that was about the that was about the size of a small bagel it looked like a bagel but it didn't have the right texture so I said what do you call this thing and she said well that's a bagel and I said no it looks <laughs> like a bagel but it is not a bagel and the guy who I was with. Texas from Texas, he was like, "You gotta, you gotta forgive him. He's from New York." <laughs> yeah, he knows what a real bagel is, <laughs> and pizza. Yeah, um, they sent. They also sent me to South Korea to Seoul, South Korea, for a week to train their affiliate there. And I spent a lot of time in Canada, a lot of time in Mexico, 
And and was all of this for around that that disaster recovery piece and and helping implement that or was it? Yes. Yeah. My role was once the hardware was set up um, to train the administrators in how to ex- how to do a backup, how to test that backups were actually working, and um, how to do a restore. We. We were a Unix-based, it was a Unix-based system. Unix, you 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 know, is case-sensitive. Um, Microsoft Windows is case-preserving. So if you have a tool called Alpha, which is spelled capital A-L-P-H-A in the Unix environment, well, we had to back it, we had to define that in Microsoft Windows as capital A L P H A, um, one of our one of the administrators at a, actually at a Navy base in D.C. made the mistake of using all lowercase, and so the backups appeared to work because there were no error messages, but they didn't. It didn't back up any data because it was looking for a directory for a folder called Alpha, uppercase A. And there was no alpha uppercase A, it was alpha lowercase A. Oh, so man. there was nothing there to back up. And the software was like, okay, no data to back up. I'm good. We're yeah, done. I ran my process. All's well. Right. Then they went to restore. Uh, it wasn't so good. And but- they called me to troubleshoot. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're out of luck. So this was in a true disaster scenario then. It's not, yeah. not a testing of the system. This was a no. oh, things went bad. We need we need and yeah. oh man. Well, that's I'm going to learn the lesson. There are at the at the law firm that I was at in the early 2000s, we lost two drives in a raid array more or less at the same time. Because the first drive failed. The guy, I was off that day. The guy working for me turned off the machine, put in a spare drive, turned on the machine. The RAID array is supposed to rebuild itself. Right. But the amount of reads and writes that killed the the next drive. Processing on the drives clobbered another drive. It's like driving a car with four bald, bald tires on a bumpy road full of potholes. You get one flat and you and you're driving, you know, you're driving 50 miles an hour and it's a 35 mile zone and it's a bad road. You get one flat, you put on the spare and you keep going 50 or 60, you're going to you might very well get another flat. You know, I was I was going to ask you with your your history in disaster recovery, if you had ever found a um, a solution to one of the problems I could never figure out, which was besides being able to take one of the disaster recovery systems and put it into full production so that you have it under full load, how could you test? Did you ever find a way of testing the throughput and the um, throughputs, the best way I can put it, of, of a system? So like one of, the, one of the systems that always had a lot of chatter for us was EDI, so electronic data interchange. You know, we're passing files back yeah, and forth. Yeah, 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 but yeah. until you're in that production environment and you're actually passing those files back and forth, I didn't 
I couldn't figure out a way to play that throughput of data and the interaction with the primary system, the ERP, um, and, and be able to test a system under load when trying to test that, that disaster recovery and that business continuity plan. Um, cause you know, if you set it up and you throw a single transaction at the system and the system handles it great, kind of like what you're talking about with those drives, how, you know, one drive fails, you pull it out, you throw in the replacement drive and now everything's trying to balance, but here was another drive that was shaky, like you're talking about. And right. You just pushed it over the edge, so it drops, and now you can't rebuild the array because you had to finish to get everything balanced so you can lose one drive. <laughs> right. I don't know. Um, with virtualization and the cloud, or even or virtualization on-prem, it's, it, it, it's resource-intensive, but yeah. you, you, you can implement a disaster recovery exercise or a business continuity exercise but you have to stand up those virtual machines and run them you may not have to stand up everything simultaneously but you you, you know you can do them one at a time so that way you can do this with fewer resources but yeah the only way that i've found like with clusters the only way to make sure that that cluster at for sure works is to take one side of the cluster down and then bring right. it back up, get it balanced and then take the other side down and, and Which you can't do put everything know. under load. Yeah. And you can only do that on at night or on weekends. Yeah. You can't really do that. Um, yeah. Cause you, Monday morning. Yeah. You take down your, your whole disaster recovery system. So in case something actually goes bad while you're testing things, now what? <laughs> kind of like lowercase a versus uppercase a. That's all it takes to destroy backups. <laughs> Man. Yeah. No, not destroy, to um, subvert. <laughs> yeah. That's, you need redundancy and you need, that's also, so th there's a, a, um, a book called Alpha Project Management. Or Alpha Project Managers, what the top 2% know that everybody else does not, by a guy named Andy Crow. He also wrote the PMP Answer Book. Okay. No, I'm sorry. He wrote the PMP Exam, How to Pass on Your First Try. Huh? And um, the key is, is planning and, uh, and communication. That's what my developers tell me. <laughs> Huh? All my developers say the exact same thing. The key is planning. We have to plan it out first. <laughs> Good. Well, we do, but you also yeah. have to be flexible enough to know when you have to change the plan. That's that's the difference between agile and uh, waterfall. With waterfall, you have a cast iron plan or a cast in stone plan, and with agile, you have scrums and you say, okay, what's going? What do we need to do? What did we not foresee? Right. Um, of course, it's a little more complex than that, but but those are primary or fundamental differences between the two. Yeah. Yeah, because you with the um, waterfall, you don't take that time to go, okay, what did we not foresee until you've completed the plan? Yeah, which is um, not the pace in which we do business today. No, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs>
<laughs> we got it. Yeah, we many iterations fail fast. So, so what are some of the barriers that you've run into along the way? So, what are some of the things that that have challenged you in your career? And and you know, what's the dark side? What did you not like around in your career that you've run into? Um, working as a DBA or as a developer on technical teams is it's okay to use jargon it's the shortcut it's effective to use jargon right but moving into management or even or going down to well i shouldn't say down or moving into customer support you have to speak the language that that your customer or your sponsor or your stakeholder understands so if you're talking to a lawyer or you don't want to talk to them about MIPS. I, I'm, you know, what's the difference between a central processor and a graphics processor? He or she isn't going to care. Right. Um, a tool for AI processing is going to use more graphical pro GPUs than CPUs because GPUs are designed for, uh, rapid processing of small algorithms whereas cpus are for rapid processing of much more complex algorithms so you can have 500 gpus running in parallel or a thousand or five thousand or more whereas you only have what two two cpus eight ten twenty cores next to your GPUs with hundreds of, or thousands of cores, but uh, non-technical non-technical people don't care. Right, what they uh, want it to work. You, they, it's the brain. It thinks. Right. Um, then some managers would want to sit down and have a face-to-face -face conversation. Others want an email. Or an email to their secretary. This was especially true. Well, this was obviously true in the law firm. One of the guys, founder of the company, stopped practicing law when he started, when his company got to a sufficient size that all he needed to do was focus on making sure the company ran well. So he would call me up and say, Come into my office, talk to me. The other guy at the next law firm, and this really got me in trouble didn't want me to walk into his office. He wanted me to talk to his secretary or talk to his other lieutenants. He was busy billing and interrupting his billing cost him money. It took me a while to figure that out because they didn't realize, I didn't know this. There's no crystal ball. How do you know what the rules of the game are if nobody tells you? Right. You know? Yeah. So you've got to observe it. You've got to watch it, but, and you, you, but you still have to be cognizant enough to catch the nuances because, yes. you know, all you're trying to do is communicate. So you're still just trying to communicate, do your best to communicate. And, and you think that it's important for the highest levels to know, and they're shunting you to the, uh, the receptionist. Wait, what? <laughs> well, they, they had an critical. executive director who was not a lawyer. Uh, they did not tell me that he was my boss. Uh, 
Um, I was supposed to guess, I suppose. So I went from one law firm where the hierarchy was executive managing partner, me, to another one where it was managing partner, executive director, me. But, but you can't intuit that, you know? How do you know? And if they didn't tell you, yeah, how do you know? Uh, that's, that's water under the bridge. Right. Um, but, and you know, like, mo like a lot of people in IT, my social skills, um, were not as developed as my technical skills. <laughs> yeah. And, and hopefully we've gotten rid of that stigma. <laughs> you know, when I was talking about no, no, the pocket the, there are no pocket protectors because people don't wear button-down shirts with pockets. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but nor do they use pens that much anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or neckties. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not that. Um, so talk to me about a, a success from failure. What's, uh, what's something that, that at the time seemed like it was a failure? that ultimately um as you're able to turn around and look at it with that that 2020 vision um that actually turned out to be a success so as a grad student in biology i had to learn to read or french german or russian or program computers i chose to program computers assembler was really hard pl1 was easy cobol was weird <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I had to program in COBOL. Go ahead. <laughs> um, then I got a job selling computers and then doing computer, I, another job doing computer tech support for this insurance company and went back to school to study computer science, wound up uh, with the equivalent of another bachelor's. Um, and, you know, that's where my career was. And the, the science background, too, is very useful in understanding and troubleshooting and getting to root causes of problems. The, um, tell me a little more about that. How do you mean? I mean, I, I can correlate a couple of pieces of it, but I want to hear your thoughts on that, on how scientific backgrounds correlate into troubleshooting. Well, you need to establish a hypothesis. Then you need to establish a test pattern or a set of tests to test that hypothesis, which is also, this is actually A plus certification troubleshooting. Develop a theory of what the problem is, test the theory, um, test the solution based on the theory. If that, if that fixes the problem, then you want to write it up so that what you have uh, actually what PMP, what PMI, the Project Management Institute, calls an organizational process asset. Um, new knowledge based on understanding of problems. Uh, last year, we had an, another uh, situation where we had problems with one of the VMware machines, one of the VMware hosts. And in restoring we 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 in after restoring the the host we had to rebuild the vms that were on the host unfortunately that was made a little bit more challenging because vcenter um 
and Veeam, the backup solution, and the production VMs were all originally on the same host. This was with VMware 7 Essentials. So you, we had vCenter, um, but again, that had to be reinstalled. And after looking at this, I said, okay, we have two hosts. We have a production host and a backup host. Instead of allocating them that way, maybe we should say, consider both production, both hosts production and both hosts backup and put the production VMs on one machine, vCenter and Veeam on the other machine. So if we lose the production machine, we have the replicas on the backup machine. If we lose what we used to call the backup machine, we still have vCenter. We still have the production machine, obviously, and we have backups or replicas of Veeam and vCenter on the other machine. Not, not really a stroke of genius or a lightning bolt from on high. It's just a, a, applying um, an, en- an, an inquisitive mindset or an engineering mindset to solve problems. Right. It's experiencing the problem and then recognizing a new solution, uh, utilizing re- available resources. Yeah. Yeah. Another time, one of my, one of the engineers I used to work with, if guy, he's retired now, he was a director of R and D for a company that evolved out of Bell Labs, spent 40 years doing network design. And he said, uh, to, to a, another person, he said, look, you should talk to Larry. He'd be good for this job. And he said, Larry has an engineering mindset. He looks, he'll look under the surface of the problem to find the root cause of the problem rather than just treat the symptom. And it, it, it works. Yeah. And with Google and now with AI, with Bard, you know, and, um, chat GPT in, uh, in, in Bing. There's a whole lot more. It, it should make troubleshooting and finding information easier. Although you have to verify the information that you find. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've got to watch out for what um, I'm starting to hear this term more and more often hallucinations. Right. Right. You know, the uh, so, AI coming uh, up with a hallucination, creating the hallucination, not just suffering from it. I asked, we were having a conversation about, um, classic rock, uh, and, and, and for one reason or another, wound, we wound up going to chat GPT and asking it, um, but it apologized and said, I'm still learning. Uh, no, it's not. It stopped learning in 2001, or at least <laughs> 3.5 did. <laughs> uh now four and and i'm hearing word about gpt5 now coming out too so yeah i don't know i think i think a lot of the concerns are real i don't know about the concerns though about ai writing music or novels i don't think it could write anything remotely as complex as a dylan song or Sympathy for the devil. Yeah, and and actually, I I wonder how well it would handle the where you started all of this with um Asimov and Heinlein, 
Man, you, I, I meant to get back to that much earlier in the conversation because you mentioned two of my favorite authors. Those guys have written some great things. Sure. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yeah. Um, Foundation. Um, Foundation. I, Robot. <laughs> I, Robot. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about AI, you know, and, and where he took it to. And, and that he hadn't even seen what we're starting to do today. So no, he wrote those books in the ninth. They wrote in nineteen fifties. Yeah. So as as we come closer to the end of the uh, the podcast, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Is there any any um, takeaways from your career and and all of the experience that you've had within IT, the different organizations you've been to, the travels, starting off as a biology major and then then going into IT. Um, Anything you want to leave the the youngins with? Anything you want to impart to them that you wish somebody had told you um, that that's still relevant? Yeah. Understand your stakeholders. If someone wants a text message, don't send them an email. Unless, uh, if someone wants a text message, don't send them an email. Yeah. If someone wants an email, send them an email. You might want to send them a text message if it's urgent. You, although if it's urgent, you might want to make a phone call. Yeah. And it is called a politics, phone for a reason. <laughs> office politics has bitten me over and over throughout my career. I never understood it. I probably never will. Yeah, uh, I understood it. I just didn't want to play. And and that I found that to be a detriment too. Yeah. Yeah. But if you but, uh, that's why God invented lawyers. <laughs> and you worked for enough of them. <laughs> also, you got to listen. And just as they need to see the stakeholders that are not in IT need to look at IT as people. We in IT need to look at stakeholders as people. So it's not um, fat fingering it's not a liveware era it's not a grayware era it's a human being who who doesn't know how to do a particular thing yeah. on a computer pebcac id 10 <laughs> you know yeah. all, all of those things where where we hey, just move just just let me sit down <laughs> you know all absolutely those things. yeah you gotta we gotta watch out for those and and you're right and and we just need to do that in general. It's not just an IT thing. We just need to treat each other as people. You know, I, I continue to talk about my coworkers, not not my employees. Um, yeah. And you know, and back to what you were saying about you know, know your audience or know your stakeholders. The CFO CFO doesn't want to know about the 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 flops. He doesn't want to know GPUs, CPUs. He wants to know the bottom line and what the how much it's going to what he's going to get out of that. He wants to know what the investment is. Yeah, yeah. Dollarizing. He wants to know what the return is. Yeah, yeah. His, his the, the accounting system needs to be correct. The backups need to be available. Right. Whatever, however you want to call them, it all needs to work. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Larry. It's it's been a welcome, very interesting conversation, and uh, it's been great to talk to you. So, uh, same here. 
as as we come to another close on a, another discussing popular IT nerd, I'd like to invite all of our listeners to comment and rate the podcast on the iTunes store or wherever you're grabbing your copy of the uh, podcast from. We really appreciate the support of the program and the time you've invested in into listening to uh, Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. <laughs>